we're going to jump in uh, to Acts 15. And I have just been amazed at how relevant these stories are to where we're at in our world today. But before we jump in, I have to tell you a story. Stories about Mr. G, who was my high school geometry teacher. Anyone remember him? No? Jenny does. That's right. My wife does. Mr. G was, uh, so we went to international school in the Philippines overseas, a school of about 700 students, most of whose parents were missionaries. It was a wonderful experience. Mr. G was kind of a quirky guy. And um, uh, Mr. G was also very gullible. Mr. G would not teach geometry class if there was no electricity. Now that might seem like an odd thing, but in the Philippines it was a frequent experience that the power would get shut off sometime during the day and there would be no electricity. Well, the school where we attended had a backup generator and the backup generator was intended to run sort of the basic, like the necessities. The air conditioning would shut off, but we would still have lights. Well, Mr. G would not teach without lights. So we figured out pretty quickly that there was a lag time of a couple of minutes between when the power went off and the generator went on. So in our geometry class, we had someone stationed next to the door by the light switch. And so when the power would go off, they would turn off the lights. And then when the power would come back on, our lights would not come back on. And Mr. G did not notice. And he would not teach class if there was not lights on. So we would sit in class, and then he would give it 10 minutes, and after 10 minutes, if the lights didn't come on, he would dismiss our class and say that we could go hang out at our lockers for the period. Well, this was great. Power would go off, lights would go off. Our designated person would hit the switch. Power would come back on. We could see out of the classroom windows. All the rest of the building was lit. Mr. G never noticed. And he would wait 10 minutes, and then he would dismiss our class. This is a perfect plan, except there was one party pooper. And she would wait until everyone else left the class, until she was the only one there, and she would say, Mr. G, the power is actually on. <laughs> and then Mr. G would leave the class running, and he would chase us all down the hallway, and he would say, if I beat you back to class, you're all getting detention. And then he would run back to class. <laughs> we'll call her Susie. Susie was a party pooper. She ruined everything. Today's story is from Acts 15. And it's basically about a couple of guys that want to ruin everyone else's party. That's what's going on in this story. So I'm going to do what I've done for the last, uh, uh, actually I've really been enjoying this. I'm going to tell you the story of Acts 15, and, um, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. So here's the story. Paul uh, had been sent out from the city of Antioch uh, with his friend Barnabas, and they had traveled around. You guys remember some of the stories? They had some really cool experiences. At one point, they were worshipped where they had to say, hey, you guys need to stop worshiping us. One verse later, Paul was stoned to death, or so they thought, right? 
And then, I don't know if you remember last week, I think it's one of the most comical parts of the story. It says that they all assumed him to be dead, and it's, it, it says, these are the words, and as they were standing around him, he got up and went back into the city. So there's Paul, his friends are standing around saying, looks dead to me. Yeah, I think he's dead. And Paul stands up, walks back into the city, and gets back to the work of sharing the gospel. So they had, they had made this trip. They got back to Antioch, and they're telling everyone of the amazing things that God had done as they had shared the good news with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are basically anyone who wasn't a Jew. And then the story tells us, and this is actually one of the most important stories in the book of Acts, because the clarifying moment for the early church. Acts 15 tells us that a couple of men came from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is like the headquarters of, uh, of the church at that time, Judaism as well. But even for the Christian church, that's where most of the apostles still were, right? That's where the elders of, like, ground zero. It was like the Hollywood for movies. Jerusalem was that for the church. You track with that? Yeah. Well, a couple of guys came from Jerusalem, not sent by anyone. They, they went on their own. No one told them to go. And they left Jerusalem and took, like, a five-day journey to Antioch. And they got to Antioch, and they said to the Christians in Antioch, just so you guys know, just so we're clear, you're doing it wrong. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to obey all of the commandments, including the one that the men don't want to comply to later in life, right? I'll just leave it at that for those who are tracking. Paul and Barnabas got into a dispute with these men, and it says that their dispute became very sharp. They said, no, 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 no. This is not right. We don't, have to we don't have to meet all of the requirements of Moses' law in order to be followers of Jesus. And so these men uh, confronted Paul and Barnabas. They confronted the church and said, no, 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 unless you follow the law, unless you're circumcised, unless you follow all of the details, you cannot be a Christian. And it's interesting because it says that Paul and Barnabas disputed this sharply, but... Paul actually began to question himself. And we know that from Galatians. He says, I started to wonder if maybe I had actually missed something. Am I supposed to be imposing all of the, the laws on these new believers? Is that a requirement of what it means to, to follow Jesus? And so Paul and Barnabas decided to go down to Jerusalem and say, hey, guys, we have some questions for you. So... They went down to Jerusalem, uh, again, a several-day journey. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas made their way down to Jerusalem. It says that they were welcomed by the church leaders, by the apostles. They said, hey, it's great to see you. We've heard all of the stories about what you're doing. Just so glad to be able to spend some time in person with you. And then Paul and Barnabas said, hey, we have a question. And here's the question. Um... What are we requiring of the new Gentile believers? What is it that we're saying is mandatory for them to be, to be uh, included in the family of faith, of, of people who follow Jesus? And it says that the, the group of church leaders had a very lengthy discussion, like more than 20 minutes probably. 
They actually deliberated this for some time over the course of a few days. And then uh, the story tells us again in Acts 15 that Peter, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, who was uh, one of the, the, the closest friends of Jesus during his earthly ministry, Peter got up to address the, the church to the believers, the leaders, and he said, um, I want to I point out a couple of things to help us to our conclusion. The first thing is, we know that God likes Gentiles because I was the first one sent to the Gentiles. You remember that story where Cornelius wants to know about God and Peter has this vision of these unclean animals and Peter says, no, 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 no. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to send you to people that you consider unclean to the Gentiles. And it's good that he did because if he didn't, none of you would be here. Well, I don't think any of you. Anyone of Jewish heritage here? You are in the Gentiles. Are you really? Mark would be the only one at church this morning. <laughs> so Peter says a couple of things. First of all, we know that God is not bound by our own sort of racial discrimination tendencies. He's bigger than that, and he has actually asked us to include the Gentiles, which is any race other than our own, in the family of faith. Uh, so, we know, we know that he sent me to preach to the Gentiles. We know that he does not discriminate. In fact, he says that. And then he says, we also know that God gave the Gentile believers the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like he gave to us. And then he says, we also know that God purified their hearts by faith in the same way that he did ours. So the way that God worked in our lives, we responded in faith, we had that, that experience of the, of the cleansing grace of God in our lives, and then the Spirit, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to, to live the Christian life. He said all of that experience is what the Gentiles are experiencing. And then he says in, in Acts 15, 11, he says, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, and that this is also true of the Gentiles. We are not saved by our own obedience, but by the grace of Jesus. And then Paul and Barnabas said, yeah, that's what we've been telling them. Says Paul and Barnabas got up and spoke again and said, yeah, that's what we've been experiencing everywhere we go, is that when people by faith trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, God seems to be willing to include them. And then the last little speech is given. James, who was the brother of Jesus, the Apostle James was actually already put to death at this point. He was killed. And so this is, this is the brother of, of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being his sibling? I guess he was God. You know, come to think of it, he was pretty nice growing up. <laughs> James, the brother of Jesus, spoke to the group. And this is what he says. Uh, in Acts 15, picking it up in verse 15, he says, what you, what you are suggesting here was actually predicted by the prophets long ago. And then he quotes Amos. Amos lived hundreds of years prior. This is what Amos says. 
After this, I, God, will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. Talking about Israel. Israel has fallen, right? I will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. So that the rest of mankind will seek the Lord and even all of the Gentiles. This was written hundreds of years previous. And so James comes along and says, guys, this actually shouldn't be super shocking. Uh, this was predicted hundreds of years ago. It's consistent with what the prophets said was going to happen. So this is what I think we should do. And again, this is James speaking. He said, I think that we should avoid making it really difficult for the new Gentile believers. The ones who are turning to God. I would suggest that we write them a letter and we tell them this. Stay away from uh, idol worship and all of the, the, the food ceremonies that go along with that. Avoid sexual immorality and don't eat meat that's been strangled or with its blood still in it. Those are the three things. How are we doing? Did you guys eat strangled meat this morning? Yes? No. How do you know? There's some things pertaining to your history and idol worship that if you continue to involve yourself in that, it's going to be problematic. Uh, in regards to sexual morality, you need to be careful. There are some guidelines there that you need to pay attention to. And then he says, uh, meat strangled or with its blood in it. And as best we can tell, this had to do with their fellowship with the Jews. Paul actually talks extensively in Corinthians about how things that we do over meals, we need to be careful that it's not offensive to others in a way that, that prevents fellowship. It seems to be that the early church said, you need to not be so offensive to the Jews that you eat in a way that they can't even have fellowship with you. So they wrote this up in a letter, and they said, we're going to send this letter with you back to Antioch. However, just to make sure that they believe you, we're going to send two of our own guys with you, two of our own friends. They'll go with Paul and Barnabas, they'll go back to Antioch, and when people say, well, how do we know you really talk to the leaders there? Judas and Silas will vouch for you and say, yeah, no, I, we were there for the conversation, and this is coming from the church leaders. So they wrote up this letter. They sent it back. Paul and Barnabas got back to Antioch with this other cohort. They read the letter, and it says that the believers were overjoyed. Oh, thank goodness. We don't have to do all of those things. We also know from Galatians that there was one other instruction that they were given, and that is the apostles told Paul and Barnabas, don't forget to care, to care for the poor. Don't forget to care for those in need. So that's the story. It's a great story. A couple of observations just really quickly. The third one I'm going to drill down on a little bit. Number one, Following Jesus is not an unbearable moral burden. Relationship with Jesus is not an unbearable moral burden. Peter confronts 
these men who had told these Gentiles, you have to do all of these things. And this is what he says. Why do you want to put on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that, weither, that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He says, we were raised in this, and we've never been able to comply. Why would you want to take people who know nothing about this and try to force compliance on them? We haven't even succeeded. Our fathers didn't succeed. Their fathers didn't succeed. All the law did was make us realize how problematic we were. And you want to put this burden on them. Following Jesus is not an unbearable moral burden. Secondly, and this is important as well, following Jesus can be sidelined by moral pitfalls. The apostles are not arguing that morality is irrelevant. In fact, the letter ends after talking about uh, food and idol worship and sexual immorality. He says, you would do well to avoid these things. In other words, your, your relationship with Jesus is going to benefit by you being careful in these areas because they will sideline your walk with God. Remember the parable of the sower? There is a seed that takes root, that grows up, and then is overcome, right, later on. So it is possible that our relationship with Jesus can be sidelined by moral pitfalls. But here's the third thing, and this is the one I kind of want to drill into a little bit further. Following Jesus is actually much costlier than being a moral person. If you commit your life wholly devoted to following Jesus, that will cost you much more than if you just decide, I'm going to do my best to be a good person. What is the new command given to the church that, that Jesus and Paul both say summarize all of the commands? Says so there's one command that is sufficient. What is it? That's right. That you would love each other, right? That you would love God, and out of that, that you would love others. That's what I'm asking. That's the, that's the sum total of all the commands. It's so simple. All you have to do is just... Uh, continually, every day, every hour, every waking moment, deny your own self, be willing to suffer for others, and commit to following Jesus. How could that possibly be complicated? And yet it is the human condition to reduce the cost of that relationship to a list of do's and don'ts because that's more manageable. What I want to do is I want to give you kind of a comparison of what it looks like for a person following Jesus versus someone who is just trying to be a moral person, how that difference plays out. I'll go through these fairly quickly. First of all, people who are just being moral tend to focus on what others are not doing those following Jesus tend to focus on meeting the needs of others. Can you believe a couple of guys on their own dime, on their own time, all the way in Jerusalem, 
five days away or so, said, we heard they're having too much fun in Antioch. We need to go there and tell them they need to knock it off. And so they left, went all the way over to this other city just to tell them what they're not supposed to be doing. When you focus on morality, you become focused on what others are not doing. When you focus on following Jesus, you're focused on meeting the needs of others in the way that he does, caring for others, loving others, right? Paul tells us in Galatians, he says, the false brethren, these guys that came up from Jerusalem, he says they were secretly brought in. They snuck in to spy out our liberty, These guys seem to be way too comfortable with their freedoms. And then he says, in order to bring us into bondage, that was their goal, was that these new believers would feel the crushing weight of the expectations of the law in the same way that they had experienced. It's not fair that you feel so happy and free in your relationship with God. I want you to feel the bondage that we felt. Get it together. And what's happening in our world today, I will tell you, it is a much easier thing to focus on what others are not doing than to focus on meeting the needs of the people that God has put in your life. It's much costlier to follow Jesus. Secondly, moral living leads to a compartmentalized life versus a life wholly devoted. You realize that if you are just trying to live a moral life, you have a a checklist. These are the things that I need to do. These are the things I need to avoid. That you can do pretty good on that checklist and still live a completely self-serving existence. Even your morality can be an effort to get for yourself the life that you want for yourself. A person who is, who is, who is focused on moral living compartmentalizes, if I, if I do these things, that qualifies me as a good person, and the rest of this over here, that's mine. You don't have any say in it. And yet Paul says, Romans 12, he says, I urge you by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, meaning given to him for his purposes while alive, which is your worship. That is worship, is to give my life in its whole, in every area that I discover that has not been committed to him, that I give that to him while alive as a sacrifice, as my worship. Because following Jesus is much costlier than being a moral person. Here's another difference between the two. Those who are focused on being a moral person find themselves constantly dealing with failure and fatigue. Those who are committed to following in the footsteps of Jesus because of the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus find constant joy and fresh inspiration, encouragement, rejuvenation in their walk with Jesus. I remember the time I was, we were, Jenny and I were married. 
was in Chicago and I was about 20 years old. I remember when it's sort of like, you know how you have those moments where you get clarity on some things that have been all jumbled for a while, right? And I remember the realization as a 20 year old, I'm getting worse at being a Christian instead of better. Something is wrong. I'm failing at this and I'm getting exhausted by my failure. How is it that, that with more maturity, with more mental capacity, with more experience, I seem to be getting worse at doing this? That is, a, that is the life of a person who's fixated on moral compliance versus the person who is, who is focused on following Jesus out of love for Jesus. In that relationship, there's a resupply of joy and inspiration in that. James says in, in 1519, I, I think that we should be really careful about making life difficult for the Gentiles. That by imposing this on it, we're going to make their life difficult. And I think that we should avoid that. And then when that message is communicated to them, it says that the people heard the message and they rejoiced. Oh, thank goodness. <sighs> So if this distinction, failure and fatigue versus joy and inspiration, if that uh, is where your struggle is right now, I would encourage you, and we don't have time to get into it right now, but I would encourage you to check out the end of Colossians 2 into the beginning of Colossians 3. This is exactly what Paul talks about. How do you go from a, 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 a walk with God that is characterized by failure and fatigue to one that is uh, joy? Last one, last comparison. A faith characterized by distance and disappointment versus nearness and expectation. You ever had a friendship with someone who is just always disappointed in everything that you do? But not for long, right? Because we want to get out of there. It's intolerable, right? Um... That constant, that constant sense of disappointing someone only creates distance over time. And for many believers, apart from like a full understanding of the gospel love of Jesus, they see, only, they see God as only being towards them over time increasingly disappointed. Because I have not even lived up to my own what I thought I could realistically pull off in complying to these, these do's and don'ts. And that sense of God's disappointment creates distance in my relationship with him. Who wants to be around someone who's constantly disappointed in me? I don't. And when I perceive God that way, I avoid him, which creates more distance in the relationship. That's the life of moral compliance. That's the life of moral compliance for the person who's being honest with themselves. The self-righteous are deceived. Oh, I'm killing it. I'm doing a great job. Versus 
a nearness and an expectation, a sense that God is close to me and an expectation of his favor in my life. Not because of my moral upstanding character, although that matters, but because of his morally upstanding character. Invite Drew to come on up. First John 2 1. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. My little children, this is John speaking. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. I, I'm helping you move away from um, destructive life patterns. However, if you are struggling with sin, I need you to know this. We have an advocate with God, with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous, meaning that in your battle against sin, you have someone who's on your side, not someone who's standing back from a distance looking at you with disappointment, like, wow, you really, you really did turn out terrible. You have someone in heaven who has access to God the Father who is on your side fighting on your behalf to overcome all of the things that you struggle with. And if you, if you obsess over the moral struggle, that's your fixation. That is downhill. But when you direct your attention to growing in your relationship with Jesus, following in his footsteps, loving like he loves, there's a sense of nearness and expectation. God is for me. He does love me. There's a lot of shouting going on right now about what it means to be a Christian today, right? There's a lot of lecturing going on. If you're a Christian, this is what you must be doing. If you're wondering what it means to be a Christian today, right here and right now, this is the way to answer that question. Commit again to a life given in love to Jesus, for Jesus. That's what it means. Jesus, what does it mean for me today to live out your love for me towards the people that you have placed in my life? Give me grace for that today. God, I don't know, I don't even fully understand what it is about our human condition. But we so quickly move away from the simplicity of a loving relationship with you and wander into uh, the yoke that no person has ever been able to bear. And we take it upon ourselves. I pray that you would provide for us, through relationship with you, a freedom uh, that, that strengthens our moral fiber that is motivated by love. And I pray that that would be our testimony towards others. The invitation to follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.